When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. Why robots and algorithms are less likely to take our jobs than most people think. Peter Capelli of the Wharton School. In some cases, we probably just don't want them. You know, would you rather have a robot delivering your food to you at a restaurant, or would you like to have a pleasant, engaging server give you your food? There are some things that are technologically possible that we just don't want to do. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? Richard, we're told robots are coming for our jobs. Algorithms are going to make us humans irrelevant. But I'll tell you, if they start coming after the podcasters... (laughs) Whoa! There'll be a fight. One of the many examples of the scare stories we're reading, the latest McKinsey report came out just days ago saying headline news over the next 12 years, up to 800 million workers will lose their jobs, replaced by robot automation, and that one in three American workers may need to retrain for other types of work. Thanks, technology. Some of the world's biggest companies are investing billions to build robots intended to replace human workers. But wait a minute, are some of the dire forecasts we're reading wrong? Is there a better way to look at automation and robots? Professor Peter Capelli is director of the Center for Human Resources at the Wharton School. He's been named one of the most influential thinkers of the decade by HR Magazine. Peter spoke to us earlier this year, and we began with asking how jobs and work have changed so far. Well, you know, the biggest change in technology has been not automation, but the ability to do work at a distance via the Internet. So, you know, the offshoring of all this intellectual, we used to think middle class intellectual jobs and programming stuff had nothing to do with automation. It had to do with the Internet and the fact that you could send the stuff back and forth to India and other countries very quickly. Uh, I wanted to say something about what appears to be the the main piece of evidence for this, uh, the idea that robots are taking over everything, and that has to do with manufacturing jobs. And I've been digging into this research to, to, to see if I can figure out what the truth really is on this. So here's what we know, right? Manufacturing jobs have declined very sharply in the U.S. They've been declining for some time because of productivity improvements. But the productivity improvements in manufacturing have been just about the same as the productivity improvements in the economy as a whole. So there really isn't any evidence of this enormous burst in productivity 
But nevertheless, there have been huge changes in manufacturing. There have been many pretty well-paid jobs in large parts of what are now sadly called the Rust Belt, where workers used to make $20, $25 an hour at large yes. factories, and now you go to, to a factory that has maybe 20 workers, where years ago it would have had hundreds of workers. Yeah, well, for sure. But let's unpack that. First of all, the decline in wages has to do with the decline in unions. There is nothing about a General Motors assembly job that required that you had to pay people the equivalent now loaded in with benefits of 40 or $50 an hour. Really, we've got a story about what is technologically possible. And the story about what is technologically possible is that improvements in artificial intelligence are coming along, they're not quite there yet, that will allow us to do all kinds of things with technology that might replace people. Uh, what that's gonna cost, that's a different question. How well it's actually going to work, that's another question. Labor is pretty cheap in the U.S., and you have to have a pretty cheap robot to be able to replace somebody who you're only paying $15 an hour to. So I think the story behind all these, quote, reports and all these projections about what's going to happen are really just stories about what is technologically possible, which is really different than what actually is likely to happen. You know, these things come in slowly. They're not going to come in exactly as the pundits predict because the systems are really complicated. So how far off from the mainstream set of beliefs are you, Peter? Do, well, do you well, find I guess, yourself in, in sharp disagreement with most experts, or, or or do you feel that the way that the debate is being framed by the news media is, is, is kind of ridiculous? Uh, well, I think... Uh, the way uh, the media works, sensational stories get news, right? And the people who are who are in the news on these topics are people who are arguing for the most sensational perspective. And it's people who produce robots, too. So a lot of these stories have been pushed along by the industry and the people who make and support robots. And the this is an interesting issue maybe to start talking about public policy, but the U.S. government spends a lot of money advocating robotics. Now, why is that? Well, one of the reasons is people seem to think that robotics are what technology what, what technology is about, but also what productivity improvements are about. And that's simply not true. There are lots of ways in which productivity can be improved by the way people operate. And in fact, I would argue that the greatest revolutions in the way work has been performed, certainly in the past hundred years, have had to do with changes in management, not with pieces of technology. And even if you think about the assembly line, the assembly line wasn't a piece of technology. It was an idea about how to organize work. And the biggest changes in manufacturing in the past generation have been driven by lean production, the Japanese models from Toyota and other companies, right, which are ideas about how you organize things. And actually, they use less technology than the systems that came before them. So I think we are downplaying other ways in which we could improve productivity. And because it's cool and people have a financial interest in it, we're talking about robotics as the answer to productivity problems. And and that's not necessarily the story. Well, Jim, you're the former editor-in-chief of Popular Mechanics, and you have some strong feelings about this. Do you agree with Peter? I tend to be kind of a market 
optimist. Yeah, uh, but you're also uh, a gee whiz tech guy, too. Right. Well, when technology does change jobs, the jobs get eliminated tend to be the somewhat more boring, <laughs> less desirable jobs. In the 50s, uh, some huge proportion of people in this country were, were employed as telephone operators. I think for a lot of people, it's a little bit of a mystery that an entire job category could go away over the course of a couple of decades without leaving all those people kind of out on the street. Yeah. How do these transitions take place? Well, if you look at the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics projections of where the jobs are going to be, the 20 jobs with the most projected growth out of those 20, only two of them appear to require a college education. It isn't the case that there's this big shift in, in at least how the experts think about where jobs are going to be uh, away from unskilled jobs and toward high-skilled jobs. That's another one of those conclusions you would get by looking at anecdotes or looking at the extreme examples. I think there, you know, there is an issue about the pace of change in labor markets being a problem, but I think that has more to do with management, and that is how quickly do companies make changes. And the management uh, approach to this, uh, which is new in this generation, has been that if you've got something like uh, a new piece of technology coming in, let's say you've got the possibility to uh, do something like eliminate telephone operators. Well, you could retrain those people for other jobs in your company, or you could lay them all off. Uh, and a generation ago, it was much more common to train people for new jobs inside your company. You could retrain them for something else in your company, or you could dump them on the labor market. I like to be optimistic about this, but I have to admit, when looking at all the things that we're facing, like the self-driving cars and you know a major advance in artificial intelligence and how that affects a lot of other functions that people do as jobs – I guess I need a little reassurance, Peter. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in, in your take of sure. why these concerns are overblown. Well, I think there are lots of things that might become technologically possible that are not practical or are not financially sensible and worth doing. So, for example, it is possible to have flying cars. The technology is there to do it. The problem is the infrastructure isn't there to allow it. And if you start thinking about what would happen if everybody actually was flying to work in their cars, uh, it would be a complete disaster. And so a lot of the things that we're talking about, I mean, let's plunge into one if you want. Let's plunge into driverless cars. So what does that actually mean? Suppose the car could drive itself and you didn't have to drive it. What would be different? Nothing, really. You'd be in the passenger seat and the car would be driving itself. So if you got a driverless car, it's not going to eliminate any jobs. You still have to have a car. You could still sit in the driver's seat. Or you could sit in the seat next to it. What, what difference is that going to make? Now, the question of driverless trucks. Let's just think about what a truck driver actually does. So the majority of truck drivers in the U.S. are delivery drivers. And only part of what they do is drive the truck. They load the truck in the morning. They got to find a place to park, right? And sometimes they've got to decide, as if you live in a city, if you're a delivery truck driver, where are you going to double park? Uh, because there are no parking spots. And how long do you think it's 
safe to double park without trying to get a ticket? That's possible. All that could be automated. How about when you do get a ticket or you, the policeman is there? You have to go over and talk to the policeman and say, hey, uh, really, just give me a minute. I'm just dropping this. Hey, we're in this together. You know, we're both working outside today. You, you don't live in New the, York, do you? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, Philadelphia, you know. Uh, and then you got to go up to the door. You got to deliver it. You got to get somebody to sign it. If there's nobody there, how long do you wait to ring the bell? Where do you put the package? And then you got to go back to your truck and off you go. Now, it's not just driving a truck. You're going to need a robot that gets out and does all that stuff. Now, let's say you got a truck that will drive itself and you're the delivery company like UPS. Are you really going to pay to have a robot drive the truck while a guy is just sitting there next to the robot and then the guy gets out and does all that other stuff? Why would you ever do that, right? So it's how is it going to eliminate that job? I don't see how that's going to happen. So the one place where it could happen is on long distance truck driving. You could have a robot drive that. But we could already do that. We could already cut the cost of drivers in half if we allowed tandem load. So you're one truck pulling two different trailers. We don't allow that for all kinds of safety reasons. And that's no different if you had a, a robot. But let's say you did that. Let's say you allowed a robot to drive this thing, right? The robot's got to pull in to get gas every once in a while. Who's going to fill up the truck? Who's going to clean the lens off the little camera when there's schmutz on the road? Who's going to clear that off? Here's another one. Airplanes, commercial airplanes, have been able to fly themselves for a long time. Why don't we do that? Well, the reason we don't do it is because it would creep everybody out if you had nobody in the cockpit up there. And we think occasionally when the robots don't work, it's good to have somebody up there. So the technology was capable of getting rid of pilots a long time ago, and yet we still don't do it. Right. Before we get on with the rest of this, just a little note to, to listeners that if you're interested in the whole self-driving issue, uh, Jim's friend Eddie Alterman of Car and Driver magazine made some really strong points in an earlier episode of How Do We Fix It on why self-driving cars may be further off in the future than, than many people think. But, but Peter, I want to go back to something you and I share in common. As kids, we both went to the World's Fair. Why is that experience for you and I relevant? to this conversation <laughs> because the 1964 world's fair they were promising us robots in our kitchen and they promised them skype which we eventually did get we had flying cars um, every one of these exhibits general motors had the automated driverless car exhibition and ge had the robots in your home and in some cases we probably just don't want them. You know, would you rather have a robot delivering your food to you at a restaurant or would you like to have a pleasant, engaging server give you your food? There are some things that are technologically possible that we just don't want to do. Sometimes we do, though. I remember when ATMs were rolling out, I guess yeah. back in the 80s, and their TV ads were all about, when you come to our bank, you don't have to talk to a machine. You, you can talk to a real live teller. And my wife and I kind of looked at each other and said, no, we'll take the machine. <laughs> uh, well, here's, the, here's the thing about that that you might not know. The number of tellers in U.S. banks actually went up after ATMs were introduced. That, that's isn't incredible. That, isn't that interesting? And the reason for that is they discovered all kinds of other things that tellers could do, which were cross-selling and other sorts of things. So, right. So that's, um, that's a really interesting example of that sort of unintended side effect of technology. Another one, a lot of times 
technology really does eliminate a job. If you'd been gone into a, an office uh, in the 1970s, you know, just any kind of business, you would have seen dozens of people, usually women, whose primary job is just typing, you know, yep. all day long. Yep. And then yep. the desktop computer eliminated that. It didn't eliminate the work. But what we did was a management decision. And the management decision was to push that work onto the individual contributors. Mm -hmm. So most of us have to type all our own documents. Most of us prepare our own PowerPoint slides. We print them. We do all that kind of stuff. And right. You could have had somebody do that for you. Uh, and I think most people would argue it probably would save time. It was a management decision because it saves money. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. We're talking with Peter Capelli about robots, automation, and the future of the workplace. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So let's look at a few solutions. First off, why can't companies retrain their workers instead of letting them go when technology changes? Yeah, I think it's been a big change. It used to be that this was the common solution inside companies, and now it is incredibly exceptional. There's a story right now, AT&T is getting a lot of attention about the fact that they are thinking about retraining their workers as opposed to just dumping them and trying to hire new ones. You know, that's been an easier thing to do when the economy was down. But it's an interesting policy question for us, too, whether we should expect companies to train their workers, or is this something that we're expecting now the government and taxpayers to do for them? But I think the other big factor is, why aren't we talking more about ways in which productivity can be improved through better use of employees, as opposed to getting rid of them? With technology, which often is tricky and often is expensive to use, certainly at the beginning, well, to some extent, the public policy has been pitched toward investing in technology. Now, here's a simple example of that. If I make an investment in my employees to retrain them with new skills that will allow them to be more productive, that counts as a liability on my balance sheet. In fact, you can't even see it in my balance sheet because it's buried in the administrative cost section along with paper and pencil and lunches for executives, things that investors like to squeeze down. But if, if you, I but, buy a, but if you took that same amount of money and spent it on buying some new equipment, 
how would that be accounted for? So that shows up as an asset on your balance sheet that counts against liabilities. You could depreciate it if you want to in ways that might make profitability look different to you, but it counts as an asset. Investment in employees counts as a liability. And if you're interested in shareholder value and looking like you're profitable and all public companies are, then you're punished if you invest in employees as opposed to investing in robots. Is this a financial question mainly, Peter, or is it also a tax question? Uh, it's both. It's financial accounting, which is driven by the private sector and organizations that set accounting standards. And it's also driven or could be driven by the Internal Revenue Service and what they're willing to account for and, and how they're willing to to assess these sorts of things. So this is kind and, of crucial. So you're, look, you're, you're looking for a change of thinking on this to, to essentially that, value workers more and, and machines less? Well, at the very least, we shouldn't be biased toward machines. That doesn't make any sense. It's not just about saving jobs. It's if you've got a choice, why should we favor investing in equipment versus investing in people? So let's talk a little bit about the the value of that human employee. Listeners to our podcast know I'm writing a book about disasters, and one of the things that you often see is humans – make a lot of mistakes, but they're also pretty good at catching mistakes. So tell us a little bit about some of the advantages of human workers in complex systems. Well, some of it has to do with ingenuity, you know, figuring out better ways to do things. Some of it has to do with what you'd hope conscientious workers would do, which is looking out for problems when they occur. You know, robotic systems and automated systems, when they make mistakes, they can make really, really big mistakes that go on for a long time until somebody catches them. Uh, there's a nice example of one of my colleagues here, Marshall Fisher, uh, discovered studying retail operations. And when, looking, when you when you say here, you mean at the at the Wharton School? Yep, here yeah, at the yeah. Wharton School. Um, uh, Marshall Fisher, who's who's an operations research, you know, sort of engineering uh, orientation. He was looking at retail firms and productivity issues. And you know, one of the big things in retail is the supply chain, and can you get better at managing it? Well, one of the things he discovered is that the weakest link in the supply chain in retail is at the very front line, and that means getting things from the back of the store to the front of the store. And that's usually where things break down. And if you don't keep the shelves stocked, then people don't buy stuff. And frequently, if they come in looking for something and they can't find it, they just walk right out of the store and go someplace else and not only buy that other thing someplace else, but the other things that were on their shopping list as well. And the key factor in keeping shelves stocked is having employees who are paying attention, who notice that there's a shelf over there, uh, things have already run out, let me go to the back of the store and get something to fix that. Now, you might think that good employees would always do that, but in fact, they're often supervised in ways that actually prevent them from doing that. So what you're saying is if we want humans to perform better than machines, we can't treat them like machines. Right. That's right. Uh, and I think that's part of the, uh, that's been a longstanding problem. It's kept the people who study management and do management consulting in business for the last 70 years is basically trying to explain to managers who went to engineering school that people are not robots. It, it's, it's clear, though, that it costs a great deal more money to fire someone than then to hire somebody else, right? I mean, that's, a, that's one of the solutions for perhaps hanging on to jobs or, hang, or, or keeping workers yep. in, in the workforce. 
Well, now that's a great point, right? Because you would think that would be a statistic that's on the tip of everybody's tongue. But I encourage you to ask executives when you see them if they know the costs of turnover in their company. And I'll bet you that they don't. I once had a fascinating conversation with a group of Silicon Valley CEOs, and I was asking them if they knew the costs of what would happen if their supply chain fell short and they didn't get parts. And and they said they pretty much knew that. And then I asked them if they knew the cost of turnover in their company, and none of them knew, which is kind of astonishing when you think about it. So if you if you don't know the cost of turnover, doesn't seem like a problem to lay people off and try to hire new ones. Well, speaking uh, of solutions, let's let's look at taxes. Uh, Bill Gates has talked about a tax on robots. What do, what do you think of that? Because that would be a, a dramatic change in the system. Well, I think what he's actually describing is he's talking about balancing the playing field because if you hire a worker to do X amount of work, you have to pay a bunch of taxes on top of the cost of paying that worker. If you hire a robot to do exactly the same work, you don't pay any of those taxes. So public policy in that context is stacked against hiring workers. So what he's really arguing is a tax on robots is really just a way of saying, let's level the playing field between investing in people versus hiring robots. Professor Peter Capelli, director of the Center for Human Resources at the Wharton School, talking about the impact of robots and automation on our jobs. Well, that was a bit of a fresh air, really. I mean, there is so much doom and gloom here. And as the person who, I'm a believer in human progress. I'm also a believer in free markets. And again and again, we've seen this story that it's all going to come crashing down. The automobile is going to put carriage drivers out of work. The computer is going to put secretaries out of work and these things do change and people are put out of work but until recently anyway new jobs emerge and i i still remain convinced that that process will continue and it's great to hear his perspective yeah one of the examples of of new jobs being created at many companies is the it department which didn't exist and and they're often employing hundreds of people another example and i love this it's counterintuitive uh, with the invention of atms peter capelli mentioned we ended up with more bank tellers not fewer bank tellers and more bank branches because it got more cost effective um, cheaper, really, to be able to open new branches. Now, one other example, and this is an opinion, it's not based on deep research, but I think there's been a rise in local businesses that emphasize community. I'm thinking of, for instance, more coffee shops, more places for people to gather, and also gyms and yoga studios. My daughter is the owner of a yoga studio in Brooklyn, and the reason why her classes are full, as much as giving a service like exercise, it's a place for people who often now work on their own in the gig economy to gather, to be part of a community. You know, it's funny, uh, blogger Glenn Reynolds, who was an early guest on How Do We Fix It, he had this theory quite a few years ago about what he called the comfy chair revolution. It was exactly that point, that stores that offer you a place to sit down that give you a sense of community, something that's been lost in a lot of our society, that businesses that realize that and help restore that really have potential. And speaking of solutions, 
company culture needs to change. And I think we've certainly seen this in the latest eruption of controversy over sexual harassment and sexual assault in the workplace. Companies need to be more people-oriented, and that includes retraining. Retraining your existing workforce should be a goal rather than simply letting people go when things change. And I thought Capelli's points about how the tax system is kind of structured against encouraging companies to treat their workers as a long-term resource, and that needs to change. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim May. Thanks for joining us. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer, and our music is by Lou Stravinsky. We're a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Find out what we can do for you at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.